everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu, episode number 108. I know. Um, I am Gabe Estel. Uh, I'm here with my co-hosts Jonathan Getz and Dennis Levi Leach. How's it going, fellas? Amazing, amazing. All right. Good, good. Hope everybody's staying safe and healthy out there. Baseball is back. Um, probably a little bit of tepid applause from the country for that, just because of all of the weirdness. Um, as we're as the recording of this, we're still in the throes of the COVID. Uh, but I hope you and yours are staying safe out there. We are excited to continue, and we're really rounding, really approaching the home stretch of this um, uh, list of the hundred things. We're grateful for in baseball and music. Uh, we started the episode, this series, back in 2006. So um, <laughs> we're, 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 we're on the home stretch. We've taken our time. Uh, yeah. Actually, it was the first podcast ever, actually, we, <laughs> um, we, uh, we broadcast. But no. Um, so tonight we are, uh, gosh, we're, we're approaching the top. Well, well, we're within the top 15 about um yeah, yeah, right yeah, around there. right around 15 yeah so we're really we're getting uh getting down these to are, the these are these are really our favorite things i mean this it's yes it's, they, they really no are doubt about it like this is absolutely this is some really important stuff now we're going to be talking about yes yes so uh want to remind everybody before we get started uh you can find any episode of uh rock and roll shinsu chu at rockchu.com you can find all archives there uh, you can listen to us in many different ways. Uh, you know, YouTube, uh, your favorite podcasting app. Check us out. Um, also, you can follow us on the Twitter and the Instagram at Rock in Chew. That's in is in Never Surrender. Sorry, I think I heard that one in the grocery store a couple days ago. Um, so that one just came to me. Oh, but, you, went, uh, you went inside a grocery store? <laughs> I did. I did. I did. It's a different world. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I wore a mask, Getz. Jesus. All right. <laughs> Getz is like, I only have my groceries delivered to me. <laughs> no, Jonathan I go approach, there. Jonathan, they... Jonathan approaches the door wearing a monocle and an ascot. <laughs> or full biohazard suit. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Le- Levi, Levi's nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. But anyway, yes, I think I heard never surrender in the grocery store the other day. I think. Um, but anyway, nonetheless... Um, yeah, Rock in Chew. Check us out there. And then, again, the website address is rockchew.com. All right. We're going to go ahead and start here. Um, number five for me. So I, I am in my top five now. So like Jonathan said, we're reaching the importance. This is hollow ground. Yeah. That's right. All right. So for this one, um, uh, you know, it's we actually had an episode um at least partially devoted to this topic uh, a couple of years ago. So I think it's one of my favorite episodes we've done. We did an episode on Philadelphia, a field guide to Philadelphia, where we talked about uh, baseball and music history uh, from Philadelphia. Had a couple couple guests on as well, uh, Craig and Perry, that were a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, I, I, I stated it in that episode, but I'm going to reiterate it here. Um, I'm very thankful, grateful for Philadelphia bands. Uh, just within the last few years, Philadelphia has probably become my favorite um, popular music city. Um, a lot of that has to do with two entities. I would say um, listening to 70s soul more, the sounds of Philadelphia. 
Um, I probably, I don't know, probably within the last five years, I started listening to that pretty heavily. You know, I think it came with me one day. I was thinking about Jackie Brown, the movie, uh, or I maybe it was even maybe I watched it again. And there's a couple Delphonic songs in that set on that in that movie. Right. And I was like, God damn, the Delphonics are awesome. You know, <laughs> so I I put on um, La La means I love you. And uh, God, what a record. Um, the production values, the voices, everything um, about that record from 69, I believe. Uh, just really blows me away. And then that just opened the doors to the flood of good music that was coming out of Philadelphia in the 70s and continues to this day with uh, one of my favorite bands probably to emerge within the last 12, 12, 15 years, the war on drugs. Um, so there is now a very good rock and roll scene out of Philadelphia with the war on drugs. Kurt Vile, who also was in the war on drugs for for a little while, Japanese breakfast um you know it's just uh it's a it's it's a it's a really good scene um so i'm 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 really liking uh that i've even got to experience a little bit of it when i got to see the war on drugs uh, about 2012 at uh the famous philadelphia music club johnny brenda's so that was really that's up there on my concert list um really small place one of my favorite bands uh, got to sit at the bar, but could still see the stage. So couldn't get any better than that. Nice. Well, on New Year's Eve with my lovely wife. Um, so it was uh, oh, wonderful. That was nice. Yes, yes. It was a, a one one of my favorite concerts. Probably they also did not Philly, but Philly. He has Philly ties. He has ties to the region. Let's say they did the ties that bind that night too. The War on Drugs nice. covered. Nice. It. Yeah, yeah. And they fucking ripped it. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, you know that's that's. I, I suggest, and I'll share the link. I, I suggest everybody go back and listen to our Philly episode. It's a good one. Um, we had Perry Shaw, who's a, a really fun um, concert poster, album cover poster. Does done a lot of work for Dan Auerbach. Um, so yeah, really, really cool stuff there. But yeah, I'm I'm grateful for for Philadelphia. It's it's really you know it kind of flies under the radar a bit um, for music cities. I guess if you're in the know and you're from Philly or the area, you're certainly aware of its of its history. But um, it's not, you know, a New York, L.A., San Francisco, Detroit, Austin or even Chicago, for that matter, probably in terms of stature. But if you if you really know about Philly's music, um, um, you know, it's uh, you know that some great things have come out of that uh, town and will and you know, we'll continue to. So, uh, really, really good stuff coming out of Philly and, um, I'm, uh, I'm particularly grateful for it. So yeah, that's, uh, that's fine. Yeah. The, the Philly episode is one of my favorites too. And, uh, because leading up to that, you're right. I mean, it was, it was fun to research all of the current mm-hmm. bands in Philly and there's, yeah. yeah, like you said, there's a lot of really great stuff coming out of Philly. Yeah. Um, but one, one band in between all the current stuff and all that 70s stuff, it's one of uh, one of the favorites of rock and roll Shinsu Chu, Mara. Yes, Mara. Yes, <laughs> I yeah, Mara. Um, out of there. Uh, well, God, you know, fuck, I the Hall of Oats as well. Um, so probably you know the widest array, some of the widest array of talent across genres as well. Um, you know, so yeah, yeah, just a great town for popular music. Um, boys to men. Yeah, boys to men as well. I love all that. Um, so yeah, good, 
Good stuff. Nice uh, yeah. Philly. Yeah. yeah. So very thankful for Philly. Yeah. 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 High marks for Philly. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm going to uh, keep it going. My first one tonight is going to also be music-related. Um, one of the things I'm thankful for is a guy by the name of Junior Brown. And I've go. talked about Junior Brown on this podcast before. In different episodes, I think we talked about him maybe in the country episode. We talked about him possibly in another. But I just, I don't know. There was something about seeing him. And I know we talked about this in the past. There was a show called Wide Open Country on CMT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, they would play his videos sometimes. And they would usually be, you know, between probably 9 and 11 o'clock at night. So it was like, it made you feel like it was like alternative country. You know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah, it's right. like, you know. <laughs> not what, during what the peak hours. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not showing it during prime time, obviously. That was reserved for like Hee Haw reruns or whatnot. <laughs> But, um, or or country music that wasn't as good, <laughs> right? Frankly, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah. And so um, in 1993, he had an album called Get With It. And um, that would have probably been maybe a year or two later was around the time I might have saw the video on the CMT um, for Sugarfoot Rag, which is an instrumental song that he is known for. That he actually did not write. I believe a, a guitarist, a country guitarist named um, Hank Garland wrote it. But um, he kind of made it his own thing. And um, I'll never forget, the video is one of those neat kind of like montage videos where it's like him and the band playing and then, you know, them putting their gear into a old looking 50s car and driving to a gig. And, you know, lots of montage clips and editing mm-hmm. and stuff. It, very 1994-95 video, you know what I mean? And so um, parts of it were in black and white, and I'll never forget the first time I saw him standing there in front of his creation that he created with a luthier by the name of Michael Stevens, and it's called The Get Steel. For those who've never heard or seen Junior Brown, it is a basically a Telecaster guitar neck with a steel guitar also attached to it. And he puts it in a stand and he plays them standing up because I guess when he first started out, he did try to like have a guitar strapped to him and try to Uh play like steel guitar and go Hmm. back and forth. Like it just did not work. And so um, he was based out of Austin, Texas. And so he had met up uh, with the guy named Michael Stevens, who was a luthier, who actually was pretty well known for building double neck instruments he built christopher cross's double neck guitar which won like a grammys and christopher cross played it for like over 10 years on like all of his records you could you could pull up shots of christopher cross double neck and you know you see it It, it's more like a double neck stratocaster where he took like a stratocaster and widened the body and the top is like a 12 string and then there's a six string and so um they basically junior brown had the idea you know the concept and so he he got with this luthier and they created this and i'll never forget seeing it in that video just because it was so different as someone who at that time i was just getting into guitar playing and uh-huh. so it to see him standing there doing it totally different but like in the song sugarfoot rag he does hendrix riffs he does 
like surf guitar rockabilly type riffs. He 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 makes this instrument create all these crazy sounds. And uh-huh. so it was so um I was just enamored with it. I remember the first time I ever saw it. And so then I was lucky enough sometime probably around 99 or 2000 he played Springfield. And so me and a couple of my friends from high school went and saw him at this little place called On Broadway. And um, I don't know, probably like 75 or 100 people could have been there, tops. And it was just amazing. And um, he was – I ended up kind of getting to talk to him for a second, and he was super nice. And he signed my CD of Get With It. I still have it framed. (laughs) And – it was just one of those experiences where it was like full circle. Like I had seen the videos of him. I had always like been enamored by him and like had the CD. And then I finally got a chance to see him. So it, it was, it was a neat experience. And so, um, I, I always appreciated his uniqueness. And so I, I, he's junior Brown's definitely one of the things in, in music I am thankful for. Cool. Right on. Cool. Yeah. Gosh, I'm going to have to spend some Delphonics and Junior Brown tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, he's one of those guys, I have to admit, I don't know his catalog well, Levi, and I know you've talked about him, and our, our buddy Michael, who's been on the show, is, I think, a fan of him as well, described him as Jimi Hendrix with a cowboy hat. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I, I need to I need to, I need need to, to brush up on his work. I yeah, know. I mean, some of it, you know, like I would say it's kind of divided into three groups, some of his music and I'm not trying to simplify by any means, but it's like some of it is like this guitar virtuoso type playing. Mm -hmm. Some of it is like straight up honky tonk, hardcore old style country. And then some of it is kind of like that style, but with like cornier, funny lyrics, I should say, you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Cause like one of his biggest hits was a song called uh, "My Wife Thinks You're Dead." <laughs> the the main one of the main lines in the chorus is, "Cause you're wanted by the police, and my wife thinks you're dead." <laughs> that's so what I call. That's not country. That's funntry. F U N T R Y. Right. So I mean, <laughs> some of his songs are kind of tongue in cheek, funny like that. Sure. And, but others, you know, are just like I said, solid old style country, or mm-hmm. or a guy in a cowboy hat playing Hendrix style, which is awesome too. So yeah, I highly recommend everybody check out Junior Brown. He deserves all the downloads and the credit and everything he gets. Sweet, right on. Right on. All right, well, I'm going to shift it over to baseball then, and um, uh. Specifically, collecting baseball cards between 1987 and 1992. Uh, mm-hmm. This was one of my all-time favorite things. And so I, I was seven years old when I started noticing my older brother's baseball card collection as books were filled <laughs> with, like, Jose Canseco and Don Mattingly and Eric Davis, among mm-hmm. other dozens of other current and quote-unquote future stars. I'm looking at you, Greg Swindell. 
<laughs> you know, and at, at that age, my my biggest hobby probably wasn't much more than like a secret stash of Alexander the Grape and Lemonheads boxes in my bedroom closet. So when I learned about more about baseball cards uh, from the easy purchasing, I could find the packs at the bottom of the candy aisle, directly below those Alexander the Grapes, uh, to the peripherals of beautifully organized binders to uh, those promised those promises of untold wealth. Uh, I was hooked. So, you know, initially collecting is just simply about accumulating, right? You know, if my mom was going to the grocery store, then that was an opportunity for me to tag along and just beg for a pack of cards before we left. Uh, But after a year or so, the collecting slowly started to take shape and become more strategic. And Wade Boggs became my first favorite player for reasons I'm not entirely sure, other than um, that he was absolutely raking at the time. And and, and here's one of my favorite... uh, uh, cards um uh, wade boggs Mm -hmm. cards 1988 don russ and it's got the little mvp uh for some reason i love that little mvp team mvp logo um and so i started filling my pages with like every wade boggs i could find right and resulting in trade proposals with my brother and trips to go to the card shops in springfield to get some pre-87 Wade Boggs cards. Uh, But then I noticed this teammate of Boggs, who, based on his special card inserts by nearly every damn manufacturer, was a darling of the card companies. Roger Clements had been in the league for just a couple seasons, but his impact was immediate and immense. And his baseball cards were another level entirely. Uh, His rookie cards were already valued above $100 at the time, putting them well out of my price range. But his more easily attainable cards were stylistically fun, um, whether he was standing uh, next to the strikeout <laughs> sign uh, printed on the green monster in 1990 Tops. 1990 Tops. Yeah. No, that was, is that a 91 Tops, dude? Uh, sure about that? It's a 91. That looks like a 91. 90 yeah, Tops yeah. is like Frank yeah. Thomas. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Sorry, 90, yeah. 90, 90, 90 Tops are good-looking cards. <laughs> no, we right, gotta yeah, yeah. we got to keep you honest. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I we would have, I would have gotten so many emails, and people tweeting at us. Um, and and but then another one of my favorites is the '91 oh, Fleer, uh, where he got the art, yeah, the artistic portrait treatment. Yeah, um, but then he was given an entire subset '92 Fleer, and uh, I, I'd collect, I got them all right. And so my pages of Clemens cards accumulated so fast that he was quickly promoted to the front of my card binder at Hedaway Box. <laughs> and you guys know what I'm talking about. And so yeah, oh yeah. this this brings no, me to the, the binder of cards, which in my opinion is, you know, the heart and soul of most pure baseball card collectors. You know, each collector's binder gives us insight to the owner. You know, for me, the front of the binder was an indication of hierarchy and personal preference. Clemens, then mm-hmm. Boggs, then Greenwell, then Burks, uh, all grouped by player, then ordered chronologically. Mm-hmm. But the back part of the binder was more of a linear storyline of my collecting. 87 tops turned into 88 down rust, turned into 89 upper deck, and so on. You could see my preferences evolve and my tastes improve. Uh, so oh, out, out with Jody Reed and in with Sandy Alomar Jr. Um, right, right. And, you know, from this perspective, the baseball card binder could be interpreted as a conveniently disguised diary for nine-year-old boys. And, you know, while we would never be caught dead writing in a diary in the living room in front of our parents or sisters, we wouldn't hesitate getting out our binder, slowly flipping through its pages, carefully ruminating upon, adding to, subtracting from, and reorganizing what at that point was essentially our life, the baseball cards. Nice. Good stuff, man. Yeah, I... uh... 
That was, a, that was an eloquent presentation of uh, thank of, you of of, of 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 cards and their placement in our lives um, and our binders. Yeah, man, I'm with you. Um, front page for me was was usually Bo Jackson. Uh, he was up there for a while. Then you know Fisk got uh, Kaseko. Uh, you know, Fisk, Fisk know. played maybe, for so maybe long. Strawberry. Did but, you did you yeah. collect much vintage Fisk? I have his All Star rookie. Oh, nice. I have that one. Nice. Yeah, um, it's the one with the little cup. You know, from uh, sure seventy maybe. Yeah, 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 something like that. Um, so I've got that one. That's kind of my prize. Sure. Um, I've got yeah. I I don't have any other. I think that's the only Red Sox card I have of him. Mm-hmm. Like he came to the White Sox in '80, I yeah, think, yeah. something like that. Um, so yeah, the rest though, I've I've got I've got most. I'd say I probably got all or nearly all of at least his tops White Sox cards. Yeah, because uh, he '93 was his last year. Um, so yeah, I've uh, which is right around the time I kind of s- sort of started. I, I should I. I was uh, baseball cards. I wasn't collecting much of them in '93. That was kind of when my right. you know it started to drop off a yeah. little bit. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I've got most of his, but um, but yeah, man, you're you're right. I uh, the binder was so crucial. I took it everywhere. You know, I took it. Right. Well, I take the thing to the bathroom. You know, I mean, <laughs> every time like you know we go to Springfield, just if it was just to go to Coles and you know followed yeah. by. Olive Garden or something. Yeah, I'd have the I'd have the I'd have the book with me. All Do you still time. have it? I take I take it in the restaurant. Yep. Oh yeah. Still yeah, got good. it. Good. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yep. Levi, uh, I, I assume you still I, have it. I don't yeah. have I don't have my original binder, I don't think, because I wanna say one of my original binders was just maybe like a normal like one inch type binder. Yeah. But it had the Cubs logo on the front. Ooh, so nice. like I kept it for years. Because, like, it was, like, professional. Like, I don't know if we got it at Wrigley Field. Wow. Maybe it was a yeah. giveaway or something. But it was, like, mm. a professionally screen-printed Cubs logo on a binder. Wow. And so I had that for years. And usually, yeah, like, Samberg, Grace, they were always at the front. Um, Dawson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget, I traded. Wor- worst trade ever, <laughs> but best trade ever. I traded a, uh, I mean, because now it's obviously not, neither card is worth anything really now, but I traded an 85 Olympic Team Maguire rookie card for the 87 Dawson MVP card. Oh, and what, you, you got the Dawson? Yeah. Oh, that's an awful trade. Was, yeah, no, it's awful. Yeah, yeah. no. But, well, you know what? We we are are it had more value because of the player, right? You know, right. Like, I mean, yeah. that was the thing. Was, I was like, it's fucking Andre Dawson, and he was the MVP on like the Le- last Le- place Levi team. was trading with his heart, not with his head. <laughs> I right. was right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like I have, I have. I had someone I traded with. I knew he liked the Cardinals, so I'd always like push the Cardinals players and <laughs> trades to get his better cards. I got all these know, Jack always, Clarks. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I always had the upper hand. Like I kind of read Beckett more than him. You know, I'm not going to mention the name or anything like that in case he's <laughs> embarrassing. But um, yeah, I feel like I always was like, yeah, you know, I was always had my finger on the pulse of the rookies. You know, kind of like, like Todd's going to be huge, man. Believe me, you want yeah, all these, right? Right. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I, um, 
I, I know what you mean. Like you, and also probably some people maybe took advantage of me like that with White Sox, possibly. Right. Or I don't know. Yeah, what goes around I just around. The, yeah. like the most beautiful poetic justice of it is is like all of McGuire's like rookie cards tanked mm-hmm. to where like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to where now it's not worth anything really. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Each card's worth worth a dollar or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Good times. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Good stuff. Um. Am I next? Am I, yeah, yeah, okay, back right. to me. All right, I'm going to stick to baseball um, as well, and um, I'm going to go with – this topic is divisive in terms of baseball strategies, and you can throw all of the sabermetrics you want at me and, and, and tell me that I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm admiring something that is, um, I don't know, often counterproductive, but I don't care. Don't I me. love butts. Oh, I love butts. I love butts. <laughs> I, um, I, I know, I know, you know, people like, yeah, you know, it's out, you know. Um, I get that. But, dude, when a butt works, it's so exciting. It's like the equivalent of, like, um, the thing I compare it to, the feeling, not necessarily the, the act or mobility of it, is an interception. You know, like I love, like I don't follow football that closely, mm-hmm. not as much as you guys do, but I like interceptions. Mm-hmm. They're more exciting than touchdowns to me. Yeah, yeah, it's probably. Um, yeah. So I, I, so bunts. Some people may not view them on that level, but that's that's the most apt comparison to another sport I can make because um, I, uh, yeah, I just I I love a good a well executed bunt, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's everything's really fucking tense while the butts the bunts in play. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I yeah. mean, I mean, almost more so more so than a traditional hit. Yeah. A lot of the times yeah. they're anticipated, mm-hmm. and then people still can pull them off though, even though it's anticipated. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. So they are, like I said, they've come under fire in recent years, and I haven't looked at the totals, but you probably, I'm sure, you don't see them as much as you used to. Um. But yeah, man, I've I've always had a soft spot for bunts. Um, anybody that can lay one down, I love. One of my favorite. I, so I, and I wanted to look up like, okay, who are baseball's like best bunters ever, right? I thought in my mind, I was I, my memory served me correctly. Growing up, I always remembered. I thought Brett Butler was a really good bunter, right? He certainly is the type. You know, he's like <laughs> your speedy center fielder. Brett Butler also had braces later in life. You guys remember that? Yeah. Yeah. He did. Yeah, a lot of bees here. Brett Butler bunts with braces. braces. With braces. Yeah. Um, um, kind of reminds me of was that in Magnolia when, when William H. Macy is getting braces later on because he's got a crush on that bartender. <laughs> I, was, I thought when I went and saw that movie in the theater, you know, 20 years ago or so, I uh, immediately thought of Brett Butler. <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah, Brett Butler, like, got braces, like, after he was 30-something, you know. Anyway. Um, Dodgers must have had a good dental plan or something, but anyway. <laughs> so yeah, and I looked it up, and, and Brett Butler was a a, a well known bunter. Mm-hmm. All right, so I was right. My memory from my youth served me correctly mm-hmm. there. So before I even looked it up, I got that one right. Another one, a guy that I've talked about on this podcast before, how I think he's criminally underrated player. Um, Juan Pierre was 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 a good bunter. He was also though. Like a lot of bunters, um, it, it's all it's kind of like stealing bases, right? I mean, most of the time, the person, the guy who leads the league in steals, 
you know, obviously he tries to steal a lot. Yeah. So he gets thrown out some too, yeah. right? So yeah, he yeah. might, yeah. you know, he might be up there on the list of stolen bases, but also, you know, the, mm-hmm. up there on the list of, you know, caught stealing as mm-hmm. well, yeah. right? It's going to be the same way with bugs. You know, it's going to be, the, the stats are going to play out similarly. So when I looked at, you know, I was looking at like some SB Nation sites, you know, there have been articles about it. Um, I was looking, you know, and it's like, yeah, a lot of the guys appear on, both lists, you know, executing the bunts well, and then also, you know, mm-hmm. not executing the bunts yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I think Pierre was like one season he was like 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 the best bunter. The next season he was like the worst bunter. If you're looking at percentages, you know, it's, yeah. it's weird. It's a weird stat um, as well. Um, some of the guys, other guys that were like good bunters. There's this guy that played in the '60s named Don Blazing Game. He was kind of just an average player. Um, uh, you know, had one. He had like a couple all-star years in the late '50s with the Cardinals, um, but he was he was a good bunter. Lee Mazzelli is a really was a really good bunter. Uh, also, a guy like Otis Nixon, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. with speed, was mm-hmm. up there with punching. Um, and then um, also a more recent guy um, that I'm kind of wondering what happened to him. You guys remember Niger Morgan that played for the yeah. Pirates? Yeah, Pirates and the Nationals, yeah. um, maybe Brewers too. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 he, yeah. He was, yeah, he was, he was a pretty good bunter as well. Um, um, very bunted a lot, I should say. And uh, he also, like, I didn't know that guy. That guy played like junior hockey in Ontario. Did you know yeah. that? Yeah, Andrew Morgan did. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Wikipedia. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so there's there's a lot in the articles about Juan Pierre. Um, another speedy guy. Willie Barris. I mean, the list is 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 pretty kind of predictable. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of the guys that were your speedy center fielder, or middle infielder types, um, usually center fielders that that bunted a lot. Um, Brett Butler for the most bases empty bunts in a single season. Brett he's Butler's got bases empty bunts with prices. Yes, exactly, dude. Yeah, he he's got the best ever. He's got number. He owns number one. Number three, number thirteen, number fourteen, and number eighteen of like shit. Number twenty-seven too. So like of like the top thirty, he's got like five of the best bunting, the best wow. seasons. Ever. Man, and Pierre's on that list quite a few times as yeah. well. Um. So yeah, and then a cat that didn't really what, play the Marlins and Cubs and who did he go to after? The no, Cubs? he played for a lot of people. Um, yeah, he played for the White Sox for a little bit. Um, Lapierre modeled some uniforms, um, but he was always, in my opinion, a very underrated player. Um, oh yeah, I always liked him on the Cubs. I thought yeah, he, was he played for the Rockies. Hits, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, um, but just you know, like he he got shipped around a lot. And he, um, which, you know, also means, you know, you have value too. obviously teams want your services. doesn't matter if you're, you know, wearing a different uniform every other year. But, um, but yeah, he, um, you know, he was, he was like a 295 hitter, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, 343 on base percentage. So, um, you know, pretty good, Mm -hmm. uh, there and good, pretty good postseason player too. Um, so yeah, yeah, Cubs, Dodgers, Pirates, or no, not Pirates, I'm sorry. Uh, Rockies, started off with Rockies, then went to Florida. He was on that Florida team that beat the Cubs. 
Uh, then he went to the Cubs a couple of years after that. Dodgers, White Sox, Phillies, and then ended his career with the Marlins again. So Going home again. Three-time stolen base leader. That's who I, I'm going to get him on the show. I want to get him. I want to get JP on the show. So, yes. So, uh, in summation, I love bunts. I know from a strategy perspective they are divisive. Most people would even say bad. Um, but I don't care. They, you know, they, they get me excited. They make the game more fun. Bunts. Right I, yeah, dude. I, I – um, uh... I would always be bunts make me sweat a little bit because yeah. in little league and you when you were asked to bunt it was like so <coughs> critical that you got it down. Tim Hury was not gonna put <laughs> up with that shit if you didn't lay down the bunt, and so there was a lot of pressure. You know, you would step out of the box, you would get the sign, and you would see bunt, and you're like, ah, oh, bunt. Like, you're like, it's <laughs> it's hard to bunt. It, it really yes. is, and yes. um. And, and, you know, I, did, I don't like, you know, the ball coming straight at me and because I was afraid to be hit anyway. And then it could hit your fingers and, and, and that would hurt even more. And, and <laughs> But when you laid one down and even if you were thrown out, if you advanced the runner, man, that was that was something to be proud of. No doubt. It was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because, yeah. I mean, I was probably going to strike out anyway. So <laughs> might as well make myself useful. <laughs> Right, right, right. Dude, uh, Pierre in 07, 19 bunts that that um, he that he made into hits. Successful, wow. Successful, yeah, yeah. 19. Yeah. That's a lot, dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. To get on first safely with the, you know, 19 times on a bunt. My my, my, yeah. my sister would also want me to stick stick up, uh, stick up for the bunt, my older sister Maggie, because um, she was uh, regularly in the, in the top top 20 hitters, uh, uh, batting average, uh, for batting mm-hmm. average, uh, while, uh, at Sacred, uh, Hart Griffin, um, uh, she was a notorious drag bunter. Uh, she was left-handed, uh, so that means mm-hmm. she, she could, um, and by, for the people that don't know, when you drag bunt, that, that means that you're, you're, you're bunting while, like, basically Running. with a foot yeah. out of the box towards right. first base, right. and, that, and you can do that as a left-hander. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, she, she mastered the art of, of drag bunting. Nice. nice. Good deal. Um, yeah, I like a drag bunt too. Um, you know, uh, last thing about bunts here. Um, uh, there was in Oh three Roberto Hernandez for the A's, um, got a walk off bunt or had a, a walk off bunt. Um, in the ALDS game one, so a playoff bunt to win wow. a game. Wow! Yeah. I didn't know that. Base, twelfth inning, bases loaded against um, against the Red Sox. Wow! And the bunt worked. What yeah. year was that? Oh three. Yeah, would have been like would have been like prime Moneyball era. You well, know? And that was that was the year that the Red Sox lost to the Yankees in the ALCS. Year before they finally won the World Series. I do, so um, yeah, so so obviously like, you know, the A's ended up losing the series, but what, but uh one last thing I sorry, one more thing is that I like about bunts too and in defense of bunts, I guess. Um is that when they happen for a second, it's one of those plays where like everybody on the field goes, "Oh shit." And no matter how much you train for bunts, there seems to be a certain level of uncertainty on the part of the fielders about what to do because you don't know who's going to get it. You don't know the angle to take. If it's going to take a weird hop, you're going to have to barehand it. You're going to have to throw to first and not throw wild. 
and uh-huh. and and that, that's what to your point, Gabe. That's really what makes it exciting. But it's just it's interesting to think that um, it's just one of those little things that that throws a cog into the machinery of these fine tuned and uh-huh. finely trained athletes. Right, and, absolutely. Uh, it just throws them off their game. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's I love seeing that. You know, I, I love seeing that. So. That's great. Um, oh, sorry, I said the last thing about Bunting a minute ago, but I'm so excited. It's about all it's all Bunting from here on out. Yeah, um, I, I looked it up. Generally speaking, like in recent couple of years, at least last year, Colton Wong is considered one of baseball's oh, best bunters, yeah. which I guess makes sense from you know his position, his physique, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so that that wasn't a shock to me. But last year he was arguably he was he was baseball's best bunter. So. Anyway. Yeah, that's all right. Well, I even got a few of them bounce off against the Cubs, Levi. <laughs> well, this actually transitions to mine. Um, you know, I'm going to talk about someone who I've obviously talked about before on this podcast in various different ways, but a man who appreciated the bunt and he appreciated it so much that he even talked about it in his Hall of Fame induction speech. And that man is Ryan Sandberg. And so, um, yeah, I, uh, I've talked about it before. He was like one of my first childhood heroes as a sports figure. Uh-huh. And um, he's the reason I always wanted 23, whether it was like baseball or basketball or soccer. It was like, oh, I want to be number 23. And they're like, there are 12 kids on the team, kid. Like. We have one through twelve. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, not a lot of double digits in the little league. <laughs> so yeah, I did not get twenty three a lot. I did, but um, and so um, yeah, it, talking about the bunning thing, he talks about that in his Hall of Fame speech, which is great. It's about twenty minutes long. You can pull it up on YouTube and watch it. And about how when he was brought up. In baseball, you know, he started out with the Philly organization who basically traded Mm -hmm. him like right before he was becoming, you know, a major leaguer. Sure. And so he was just talking about, you know, he was brought up to where it wasn't good enough to be able to just hit a home run. You had to know how to be able to bunt and advance Mm -hmm. a runner. And you, you used to have to know how to field your position and. And he talks about a lot of things that have kind of gone by the wayside. Whereas, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who are just paid to hit home runs nowadays, sure. and you know that you know they don't they don't know the fine arts of moving base runners along or the the different aspects of the game that aren't as prominent nowadays as they mm-hmm. were back when players, you know, from the '50s all the way through to you know the '80s and '90s, but um. One of the things that I always was drawn to him about was he was like always one of those really quiet superstars. He was always the superstar of the Cubs. Like, I mean, if you look like every year he was on the Cubs, he would literally be probably considered the the star of the team. Yeah. Oh, he was the face um, of the organization for 10 years. but But yeah, but he was like not super outgoing in the fact that like he didn't give tons of interviews no he didn't he like he let his plane do the talking he was like of that era he was the eddie van halen of baseball uh, during that time (laughs) eddie eddie not a big interviewer either anyway yeah he just literally he he would let his baseball do the talking and i mean it was um it, it was 
I, I he always earned my respect because of that. You know what I mean? He just showed up, worked every day. Oh yeah. Put it all on the field and then came back and did it the next day. And um in nineteen ninety-two he was awarded a contract of seven point one million dollars a year for four years. Which in nineteen ninety two that was the largest contract ever. Mm-hmm. And so What's interesting is the contract. So he was making seven mil a year. In nineteen, you're saying not seven yeah. mil over those four. Years. No, no, seven point one annually. Got times it. Got it. Okay, got yeah. it. So nearly so, a thirty million dollar contract. Right. Okay. The 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 deal that got that beat him. The next deal was Barry Bonds in ninety two. Later that year, mm-hmm. he ended up getting seven point three mil a year for six years. Was that with Pittsburgh or San Francisco? Ah, 92, I'm not sure. Might have still been Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah, I was might have still been Pittsburgh. But um it's just crazy that that's the that's the big money that those guys mm-hmm. were given. Oh you know yeah. I mean? Yeah. I always liked Rhino too, man, even though I, you know, rooted for the team across town. Um he uh he he would be a hard player not to like, you know. Well, and yeah. the same thing with he he kind of pulled the Jordan. He retired early. Not a lot of mm. people remember that. He retired in 94 yeah. when he was only 34 years old. Right. And the reason was he said like he had been having a bad year and he was like, I don't feel like I'm earning the money. He's like, I'm missing not being around my kids. Like I hadn't gotten to see he like his kids were, I forget, maybe like seven, eight, nine years old. And so right. he was like, I'm going to just call it and so you know he an emotional press conference he retires at 34 mm-hmm. and he was during that time when he retired he was making like 15 mil a year he had been given a 15 mil for three year contract at that point Dang. and he walked from it and so um he he ended up coming back two years later and he played another two seasons but um he just always he was just always one of those players where it was like and and I don't know if anyone ever really told me it, but like I automatically always wanted to be like him. Whether it was like I'm saying in my game, like I wanted to try and hit like him, I wanted to try and just show up and not complain like him. You know, but I mean, you know, we're all kids is that obviously, you know, we all complained in Little League about something. But like, I just I knew that that was like that was the right way to do it, the way he was doing it. And so that had that had a profound impact on me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was looking up MVPs here. He did get one. Eighty four. He was the MVP. Right. Yeah. And then also, you know, I was like, yeah, his uh, his return in 96, not quite as triumphant as MJ's return that year yeah. Um, yeah. for other Chicago athletes. Yeah. 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 Not 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 quite. Um, but that's OK. Yeah, man. He was he, he was he, I, I was I was a little saddened to Levi when um, he didn't have much to work with on the team. So that's that's uh, that's probably a lot of it. Uh, he didn't when he didn't work out as a manager. You know, the Phillies. Right. I mean, and he left voluntarily, if I'm not mistaken. I think he quit. Like, like you know, didn't even really get like half a season, did he? 
Yeah, it was like the Phillies sucked. Yeah. They were like a, you know, they were like that. Phillies was like those are like hundred lost teams. You know, they fucking yeah. suck. Um, so I know he kind of gotten he got like passed over either when they picked um, who's your guys's coach now? Oh, Renteria. Oh, when they picked oh. Renteria, they had talked about possibly picking Sandberg then. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so I. I think that caused him to then go to the Philly organization, and then that's when all that happened. I don't really know what I I didn't follow him when he was coaching with Philly, really. But yeah, um, yeah it, it's it's one of those things where I think possibly he might have been too quiet, almost. Yeah, maybe. The guy to be, but like. But if you saw him in some of the minor league clips, they would show he got thrown out of games like a bunch when he was a coach in the minor leagues. Yeah, like he was he was like full of piss and vinegar kind of as a coach, which was totally the opposite of. I don't know if I ever saw him get thrown out of a game once ever as a mm-hmm. kid. Yeah, now he kind of had a Boy Scout vibe to him uh, as a player, you know, for the most part. Well, and um, for Scout, the intense purposes, like. You know, I've read a lot about other players. One of my other favorite players was Ripken. And so Ripken had that wholesome vibe too, but you can kind of like dig in, find some stories where like Ripken was like, like harassing rookies and like. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like I've he read about him recently. Like he hasn't come off as that, that. Yeah, he doesn't really come off as favorably as he used to. And so, know, like, I've tried to dig around. You can't find anything on Ryan Sandberg except that it's like. He was totally genuine, and that's yeah. who he was. Like he just—he was kind of quiet. And he showed up every day, and and he talks about something that I—and he talks about it in his Hall of Fame speech. He struggled a lot, like whether it was sometimes with fielding or hitting. Whereas we may not have seen it as fans, but like he was saying that he was going in, like he, you know, first one at the stadium, last one to leave, like. Working on his fielding, working on his hitting, he he says that baseball was not easy to him. Hmm. Like it didn't it didn't come purely easy to him, like it does some people. Hmm. So that right. was interesting because as a kid, you don't ever really get any of that behind the scenes, or at least we didn't in that era. There was no Instagram or anything, you know. Sure, sure. I I would barely get a little bit of Cubs news on this week in baseball, and that yeah. was about it. And I, I saw Levi, like, I, I knew he was in the Phillies organization, but I have to admit I didn't know he played any games with the Phillies. He only played, looks like, about a dozen games with the Phillies in 81. Yeah. I have to admit, I, I, I didn't know. And uh, so what was I didn't know Dallas, if he ever made it to the big leagues with the Phillies, but it, he did. Anyway. Dallas Green left the Phillies organization and then went to become the GM of the Cubs. Uh, and so basically he put together a trade. I forgot who it was. Larry Boa, I think, came up. Larry Boa, from, yeah. And so in the trade, it was like, oh, yeah, we, I have to have that Sandberg kid, too. Like, he, Sandberg was like a player to be named later. 20th round draft pick, yeah. Well, Cubs, Cubs got the best of that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and Sandberg is just ahead of Ernie Banks in career war um, and just behind Carlton Fisk, the aforementioned. Uh-huh. When he retired, he was led the second baseman with most home runs and everything. But I think that's gone now. But. Sure, yeah. there, there's there's not of the uh, um, you know the bulk of his 
his best years in the 80s and then, you know, early 90s, even up until about 93 or so. He was yeah. still kicking ass. Um, not really a lot of not much competition at second base around the league for like the, you know, like who's the second best mm-hmm. second right. base mm-hmm. of his era. I'm, right. I'm kind of stumped. Like what, like Steve Sachs or something, you know? I don't know. Um, Robbie Alomar, maybe a little later, you know? I wonder. Yeah, uh, he didn't have any competition. Like second, he owned second base during his time. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't think of anybody. I mean, maybe there's somebody really obvious I'm overlooking, but um, nobody else comes to mind of second baseman who kicked ass from like. 84 to like 93 yeah literally as a kid i remember every all-star game it was ozzy smith at short and ryan saber the second oh yeah yeah (laughs) it was like it it was like it didn't matter what year it was that was the you knew who was playing shortstop i'll I'll, I'll have to go back and look at like the american league all-star teams to see who played second base that might give a little bit of an indication of who who was hot you know in the al but i i can't think of anybody offhand like yeah, or if there is, there's a big gap between Samberg and Steve Sachs. I yeah, mean, it, it, they, they, those were the two second basemen in eighty in the '86 All Star game. Uh huh. Um, in the '87 All Star game, Juan Samuel of the Phillies. Of oh, the Phillies, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and in the '88 All Star game, uh, it was uh, Robbie Thompson of the Giants, for example. So yeah, yeah, not 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 yeah. real. Competition. Wait, Robbie Thompson started over Samberg? No, he was a reserve. He was Uh, a reserve. Yeah. Yeah. Willie Randolph of the Dodgers in '89 was a reserve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But even in the American League, not a lot, like really a lot of good second basemen as well. I'm talking just like all of baseball. There's nobody. There's nobody really close to hit that position. Yeah. Yeah, it It was Alomar. You know, definitely giving him a run for his money in the '90s. Um, right, but um, yeah. in the eighties, yeah. yeah, Julio Franco um, played opposite Paul Molitor um, in eighty eight, uh, and then in eighty seven, Willie Randolph. Did Molitor always play second base? No, he played third base so. too. That's what I thought. That's what, That's I, what thought. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Lou well, and then like on the Twins, did he play some outfield? No, maybe I'm know. thinking of something. Else. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Molitor played for the Blue Jays for a little while too. Yeah, won a World Series. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Good stuff. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Rhino. All right. All oh, right. Uh, last last yeah. Sandberg fun fact. His last game was September twenty first, nineteen ninety seven. Also, the last game Harry Carey ever broadcast at Wrigley Field. Oh. It's kind of fitting. Yeah. 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 Nice. All right. Well, I'm gonna. Uh, the, take us back to 1993 and um you know it was september 93 uh i was i was still very much a music novice you know i I had latched on to pearl jam and temple of the dog and Soundgarden, uh but my musical knowledge and taste were seriously undeveloped uh and this is forgivable for a 13 year old raised on his parents preference for light rock and his brother's preference for mostly hair metal at the time And fortunately, in the early 90s, MTV was still interested in showcasing A, music, and B, (laughs) artists who put personal care and thought into their music. So when the Video Music Awards were set for a school night in September 93, my friends and I made an appointment viewing. Gabe, I'm not sure you were there. 
Um, yeah. Our consensus favorite band, Pearl Jam, was up for several awards for the video for Jeremy uh, from 92, and more importantly, was slated to perform. Uh, since the band had played Jeremy at the prior year's VMAs and had their second record, Versus, slated for release in the coming October, we thought a new song might be on the cards for the evening, and we got that, but much more. Uh, so Pearl Jam debuted Animal that night, and that is, it was a debut for those less than fortunate, uh, less than uh, fortunate like us who hadn't seen them play it on tour earlier in the year. And listening back to it, the TV audio mix was awful. Uh, Eddie's vocals are barely audible for the first verse, and Mike's guitar is oh. practically muted for the entirety of the performance. Uh, regardless, it was a barn burning two and a half minutes and well worth the wait. Uh, but when the network didn't cut immediately to commercials for acne wipes or starter jackets, I realized we were, <laughs> it was then we were in for a treat. And that's when Neil Young strode onto stage with Eddie's simple introduction of, you know this guy. And well, I only knew him by name. And that was it, outside of WYMG playing just a few of his hits over and over again. But what happened over the next seven plus minutes set my musical tastes on a course that would provide all of the rock and roll education I could ever need. And Pearl Jam and Neil Young stormed through Rockin' in the Free World, a song that at the time seemed like a classic rock anthem, but had in fact only been released less than four years prior. Um, Neil completely commanded the stage while Jeff and Mike ran around him like puppies wanting to play with the big dog. Uh, Neil's intensity instilled in me that there was serious music created before Seattle shoegazing rock took before Seattle shoegazing took over the rock and my own world in 1992. And diving into Neil's collection suddenly felt like a great place to start my real rock education, you know, from Harvest to Harvest Moon and everything in between. And at this moment, I'd essentially been given the green light to explore the world of rock outside of Seattle and before 1992. The rock and roll world was my oyster. I had already found the pearl. Now I was free to dive much deeper into the ocean. Neil Young and Pearl Jam at the VMAs in 93. Nice. Nice. I remember they were calling him like during that time, like Grandpa Neil or something like that. The dude wasn't even fifty yet, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Right, like the grandfather of grunge. I'm like, Fuck. right. Yeah, the guy's like, the guy's like, the guy's like four years older than me right now. All right, so yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, that was that was that was well put. That was definitely a watershed moment. Um, I I don't know if I. I think I I don't know if I saw it that night, gets with you, but um, I think you guys recorded it on VHS. Certainly, certainly. and I, I watched it a couple of days later. What's um, that? No. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, ninety two and ninety three. Those those are the those are the, that's the creme de la creme of the uh, VMAs right there. It is ninety yeah. because Pearl Jam played ninety two as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You had Nirvana play that year. You had the Crows play that year. Um, yeah, that was, it was that a good was, idea yeah. for the VCR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He had yeah. Axel and Kurt Cobain kind of with their, their feud. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean it, I, it was, it was fun to, to watch the, the whole thing back in, yeah, back in those years. I mean, you would have like Madonna thrown into the mix or something, but that was fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, most of the, the pop charts there for me was, I was enjoyable, you know. I I probably like ninety two, ninety three had like one foot in like a, a top forty door, the other foot, you know, in sort of getting more into classic rock. You know, yeah. that was yeah. 
those were transitional years for me. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. Yeah. That, uh, you know, it, it was the VCR era, like you were saying. Um, mm-hmm. it, that was how you had to basically, if you wanted to see anything later. Oh, I remember sure. doing that with like lots of stuff on Letterman and Leno, mm-hmm. trying to catch oh, yeah. catch bands' performances and like yep. get them recorded, yep. and then get trying the to like stop yep. stop the VCR and yeah fix yeah. the tracking and uh, yeah yeah, yeah. I, everything's I, I, on got... YouTube five minutes later now right mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah I've um, I've kept a, a couple of my favorite like recorded VHS tapes I think I have the crows on Letterman yeah I think I still have that. I've got a VHS that has like eight hours of Black Crow's um, TV nice. appearances nice. Yeah. Yeah. that like I got from somebody in 1997, like nice. online. Like they sent me, they're like, all right, I'll just, and the quality isn't that great on all of it because it's so compressed, you know, right. like it's like they shoved eight hours onto a tape. You yeah, know? yeah, but, that's uh, pretty low quality to get the eight yeah. hours worth out of a VHS. Right, right. I mean, most, most of it was like, you know, pro shot stuff, so it, it still was all right. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I had a, I had a loaded uh, cassette, definitely. Sweet. Yeah. yeah, good stuff, man. Yeah, no, you're right, though. I mean, I, I wasn't that familiar with Neil at the time, but I was getting into Pearl Jam quite a bit. So if they said he was cool, you know, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then it's, the next yeah, thing, you know, it's a stamp of approval that you need. Yeah. As a, yeah. you know, obviously as a 12, 13, 14 year old, unfortunately you need something like that to feel confident and venturing down another path. I think I got, I think I got decade like later that year, mm-hmm. like around maybe, or maybe even like, maybe like late 93, early 94, mm-hmm. I got decade. I think you had it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say my first like real introduction was from you, Gabe. Like, obviously, I had heard Neil Young on the radio, but mm-hmm. like my first like, hey, this is his album. Let's listen. Was Live Rust? Oh uh, wow, wow! What a baptism! So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that was literally <laughs> I, that was my first like fully envelopment of Neil Young, and wow. it was the first Neil Young CD I bought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that might have been the second one I. That was definitely the second one I owned of his. I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, you sometimes start with kind of the greatest hits, you know, and go from there. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, like I said, I've gotten been around you right after you had gotten Live Rust because mm-hmm. yeah, I we drove around and listened to it and it was like I should probably go buy this CD too. <laughs> so, <laughs> Live, Live Rust too like accelerates nicely. You know, you got the 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 three acoustic opening numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you, get, you know, yeah. 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 Oh God, yeah. Jeez, yeah. yeah. Good stuff, man. Yeah, that was that was that. Yeah, that that performance of them collaborating definitely a watershed moment for all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good stuff. All right, um, all right. My last entry of the night. Um, gosh, you know, I, I don't know how how long I can I can I can um, riff on this one, but it's something that's just always worked for me. I like flutes in rock or pop songs. <laughs> I really do. And I'm not just talking like, yeah, I love Jethro Tull, and I've liked Jethro Tull ever since, I don't know, 1993, 94. Yeah. Um, but it's always worked for me, man. You know, a flute in a in a rock or pop song. Um, I mean, you, you get it with bands where, like, with Tull, you know, the flute is the centerpiece of the band, mm-hmm. essentially. And then you get, like, a band that it's it's an integral piece, like, that really works it well, like Marshall Tucker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
you know. And then uh, traffic as well. Yep. You know, yep. I would say with Chris Wood, um, he was he was always, in my opinion, traffic's kind of secret weapon. You know, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think Chris Wood was the flutist, right? In traffic, I believe. And he, he played sax, and yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he was a multi instrumentalist. Um, you know, it's also. Um, you know, it's 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 worked well in um, in hip hop as well. Like some of the like sampling, you know, like the Beastie Boys sample, a lot of flute stuff from the seventies. Yeah. Um, probably one of my favorite rap songs of all time is "Know the Ledge" by Eric B and Rakim, which is on the Juice soundtrack. Which I think we we discussed in our soundtracks episode. One of them. Go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, it's sampled really well in that, and then a lot of. I guess I should say like a lot of the the 80s and early 90s rap would sample it. You're not going to hear it in hip-hop today really all that much, to my knowledge at least. Um, but yeah, it was it was well used then, almost like a lot of like like the Curtis Mayfield type stuff when they were they were sampling some of his work, you know. Um, he's got a lot of flute in his stuff, and obviously it's integral to jazz, um, to a lot of really good jazz performances as well. Um, so yeah, man, I, I have to admit, like, I don't put on, like, flute concertos, you know, that often or anything <laughs> like that. You know, I don't I don't listen to the flute like as an exclusive or instrument, you know, in, in terms of or it, it, the flute in uh, in isolation. But, yeah, if you put it in a pop song or a rock song, um, I'm in, man. It's always worked for me. Yeah. So, yeah, hats off to anybody, any flautist out there that are uh, <laughs> that are that are rocking the flute in uh, in, rock, in rock songs. Also, um one of my favorite times it's used, and I think it was in college when I first heard it. Um, you guys have heard that. Um, well, it was basically it was basically the the people that played that foam foot show. That's okay. Chris and Mark and Gary Loris from the Jayhawks, and yep. um, the cat there that was on congas that night, named Eric Bobo, plays the flute. And I want to say he's it, it, obviously some of it's sampled, but. I think he played flute on some of the Beastie Boys songs. And then also he played with Cypress Hill as well. Uh, I don't know about the flute, but he's like, he's a, he's a percussionist, but also plays the flute. Yeah, I want to say I saw him play percussion with somebody before. Like somebody from the Dead family, like either like Phil and Friends or yeah, or somebody. I don't know how much he gets, I don't know how much he gets around now. Um, but um, yeah, maybe, I mean, it could be him, you know, Um but that album, um, the, the, those, well, I should, it's like an EP that those guys recorded as Sweet Pickle Salad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's got some killer flute in it. I mean, it's, it's, it's ripped right out of the 70s um, with, with him, with Eric Bobo playing it. So, yeah, good, good stuff. So, always, always down for a flute. Yeah, in, yeah. Uh, I could behind that. Yeah. The rock flute. So anybody I I'm missing, you know, I mean like trap, tall traffic, Marshall Tucker, t- yeah, yeah, I, yeah. The Marshall Tucker flute is, I think, yeah, one of the one of the preeminent flutes in rock for sure. Was that Jerry, Jerry Eubanks? I think. Yeah. Flute? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was awesome too. I mean, he was he was their Chris Wood, you know, like he uh, he was he was on percussion too. Some so. Yeah. 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 Right on. Good Preach. one, man. Um, yeah, mine isn't one obviously that we're going to probably talk a ton about either, but I think all of us have cuz we were all there possibly one of the times, but one of the things I'm most grateful for 
is the ability that I got to meet Warren Haynes. <laughs> it sounds simple, but, you know, sometimes when you meet people that you look up to, that you've listened to their music for so long, that you, you know, you get so attached to them or the idea of them that sometimes when you meet them, it can ruin that. And this was obviously one of those cases where that did not happen. Like, Warren Haynes is a hundred times cooler than I could have ever even imagined. In my head, I thought he was going to be super cool and nice. But the couple of times I've gotten to meet him and talk to him, he was super nice. And so it was just super reassuring. And, and, you know, some things with the world are still right. And it's that Warren Haynes is an awesome person. <laughs> and yeah. so you guys both got to meet him as well, right? You've mm-hmm. had, like, experience. Yeah, yeah, briefly. I mean, yeah, I didn't yeah, really yeah. get to I mean, with yeah, it we long, didn't like, but, yeah, um, we didn't yeah. drink beers or nothing, but yeah. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, he, from what I read, too, he's just kind of rock southern gentleman, you know? I mean, he's yeah. uh Pretty easy he's going. just not yeah. yeah easy going not a shit talker you know just um really uh really seems like he's uh like he he seems like a good soul i've, I've never read anything bad about the guy you know so right yeah. yeah the one time in peoria was before the show he was just like standing basically at the side of the stage just talking to people oh really just looking for some real peoria people man i guess yeah <laughs> like and so that like blew my mind because th- that would probably have been 2010 maybe oh yeah. wow. 2011 yeah yeah and he's just like mm-hmm. hanging out and so he got done talking to somebody and he was standing there so i just walked over and was like hey man you know been a long time since i last saw you because i told told him about how i had gotten to see him with Alan at Mississippi nights a couple times. Mm. And he was like, Oh, I remember that place, you know, mm. like, yeah. And so it was just, he was so nice. It's so down to earth. It was, it was, it was good. Yeah. 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 yeah when I talked to him too, I was probably like an annoying 19 year old, you know, the first time I did meet him. So like the fact that he like smiled and was nice to me and looked at me and what I was saying when I was probably being an annoying fuck, yeah, <laughs> like right. was you know, right. good, good for him. Yeah. Yeah, you know, with with a guy like him, I would think that you know he was he was always accessible uh, those early shows, uh, uh, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand two. You know, you would just wait outside the venue and he would come out, right? Mm-hmm. And and you knew that you would be able to shake his hand and get a photo. And then you know he he realizes that everybody's going to be cool. So you know later in his career, twenty ten, he can go stand side stage if he had a. At a, at a, yeah, I mean, it was a little Peoria riverfront yeah, venue that probably held a, a couple thousand people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not a problem, and 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 then you you get to enjoy your time out there on the road, and the dude spends more time on the road than than most, yeah. and yeah. and so yeah, I you know we're just guessing, but I, I I'm guessing that he's yeah you know he's been able to enjoy himself out there for as long as he's been doing it. Uh-huh. It would be cool to. I've never been to New York, and I know that's where he lives, and he's all about New York now and stuff. I would love to like go on a tour of New York with Ward Aids. That would be like, in that element. That would be yeah. a really cool yeah. like YouTube video. Yeah. Somebody should do that if they have it. Yeah, so, like somebody have Warren Haynes take you around New York. It would be good. He knows where to get the best corned beef in New York. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can dig it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I, I, I vouch for yeah, it. Yeah, God bless Warren. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to close it up here. Um, and uh, this actually segues into mine as well. And uh, one of my favorite things, things that I'm grateful for with music is uh, how it can transport us back. And I, I, I have this theory that for 90% of music lovers, you know, the albums we hold closest to our hearts were released during our most emotionally vulnerable times. And this uh-huh. is why nearly all of us can fire off lists of favorite albums from that we first heard between the ages of like 15 and 18 specifically. You know, those uh-huh. albums made an impression on us uh, sure. and, and, and were there for us quite literally on repeat, you know. You know, if, if if I'm listening to the Black Crows, Three Snakes and One Charm, or Pearl Jam's No Code from '96, from 1996, when I was 16, I can smell the hot dashboard in my 1990 Pontiac <laughs> Sunbird. You know, if I'm listening to Government Mule's debut record, I can still smell the rain that gave me the day off of work to make a trek into Best Buy to purchase it. Uh, <laughs> if, if I'm listening to, to the Grantley Phillips Mobilize record from 2001, I can feel Iowa's September heat in my dorm room. You know, or, or maybe most significantly, when listening to Charles Mingus's uh, um, I'm taken back to the week of my wedding when I, I played the album on a loop in my car while making trips to the airport retrieving friends and family. <laughs> so I, I, I find these feelings both fascinating and precious simultaneously. I, I consider it a near miracle we can make these connections at all, uh, though I know there are scientific and biological explanations. Uh, but I also don't want to let go of them. So I'll intentionally withhold listening to some records that are rooted in these memories just so I can uh-huh. more carefully go back to the well to feel those feelings uh, again when I especially need them because I know those memories can be too easily overwritten by today's omnipresent anxieties, anxieties that were either absent or easily forgotten when the music made its initial impression. And so, uh, you know, artists and records can also tr- transport me to more general feelings. Uh, I especially love the sound of the aforementioned War on Drugs in the autumn, for example, or uh, Thelonious Monk on Sunday mornings, or the Allman Brothers Band while road tripping. And for, for me, the, these are like peanut butter and jelly pairings. They just go together. And, and this gives music another dimension, both in the moment and across all moments. It's transcendent like that. And you never know when connections will be made. Uh, but when they are, you're reminded why music is so damn special in the first place. And it makes me hunger to plant more seeds every day, finding new artists and sounds that I can latch on to, hope, hoping that someday, one, five, or ten years from now, I'll hear those sounds again and be transported back to a time, like even today, where anxieties are aplenty. But they, they, they will have since been choked out by the more beautiful moments that were at the time just hiding in plain sight. There you go, buddy. Well, put a, that's, that's, a, that's a good period at the end of that sentence, bud. Um, it's a good place to stop. So, there you go. Nice work. Old, old Getz spitting out. Spitting out good prose tonight. Um, out there. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for hanging with us for another episode. Uh, the, the our next one. Of yes, our, yes. Of, of our countdown. The next one will bring it to closure. <laughs> yes, yes. So be prepared for big things. Um, thanks. Yeah, check out rockchew.com. Follow us on um, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at rockinchew. And, um, yeah, hope everybody stays safe and healthy and uh, tell all your friends about us. And we'll see you next time. Have a good night. Peace.